You know, most problems in healthcare are fixed already. Primary care is already cured on the fringes. Reversing burnout, physician shortages, bad business models, forced buyouts, factory medicine, high deductible insurance that squeezes the docs and is totally inaccessible to most of the employees. The big squeeze is always on for docs. It's the acceleration of cost and the deceleration of reimbursements. I want you to meet those on this show that are making a difference with host Ron Barshop, CEO of Beacon Clinics. That's me. Do you want to make me cringe like a baby introduced to a lemon wedge for the first time? Show me these words from a main platform keynoter, a healthcare thought leader, a hospital CEO, a celebrated academic, another best-selling author, a blogger with lots of followers. Three words, these three. We need to. Or sometimes it's a, it sounds like this, we gotta. Sometimes it's the lead in their talk. We need to blah, blah, blah to fix healthcare. If we just did this, we would fix healthcare, or the lead might be buried. The, to turn this around, we need to whatever. Hearing those words is the same for me as hearing scratched fingernails on a chalkboard, or when I hear a millennial use the word like or um or right, or seriously, or no, seriously, right? So are you freaking stoned or what, son? That's what I want to say when I hear my kids talking like that and their friends but they all do. Or another little verbal sugar dumpling starts with a sentence with like, so, yes, so, no, or or how about this one? Yeah, no, or dude. So why does each of these responses kind of retch and trigger like a physical response in some of us? Well, in short, we need to just jettison the we need tos. We need to get rid of the goddess. They're throwaway words and they don't make any sense in our language. Don't give me goddess, give me a serious plan from the main platform, for God's sakes. A solution that's actually working out there, like our guest has today. Tell me a true story. I want some damn solutions, some take-home value. No more fairy dust. We've got enough of that out there. Favorite fantasies, theories, gag me. I'm starting to call out any healthcare solution guru using these big three. It's time we celebrate what is actually right about our hot mess and spotlight who is cleaning it up, people like Janice Powers. And I'll be doing exactly that in this podcast in the months ahead. My podcast, as you know, is called Primary Care Cures, and it's a double entendre because not only does primary care cure healthcare from the inside out, as you'll see through these guests, but primary care actually cures patients when it's working right. Like, right? So today you get to meet a dreamer, a futurist, a doer, a troublemaker. Janice came from inside the beast as a consultant with Deloitte. She's an author. She's a main platform speaker. She just spoke at South by Southwest. The mission on her website is to eliminate health insurance. So that immediately excites me. Healthcare, meet somebody from the inside that's about to show you a new way. Her passion is to fix the beast Uh, with efficiency, with operational thinking that she brings to the table from her years of consulting. And she's worked with the bigs, the very bigs, biggest of the bigs, all the way down to independent physician practices. So the Powers Podcast Report is how you can find her uh, new podcast uh, messaging, the Powers Report. 
is how you can get her weekly blogs, but you can also listen to this interview because you're going to learn a lot today. So Janice, welcome to the show. Thank you. That was quite an introduction. I'm looking forward to this. <laughs> well, we are overspending probably by a, about a trillion in our $3.9 trillion healthcare economy. So there's a, as somebody who just loves efficiency, you're probably, I'm assuming your closets, the shirts are all organized by color. The pants are all organized by style. I'm assuming, in other words, you're a pretty efficient operational person in your personal life, I imagine. Yeah, it's, I, well, it's funny you mentioned my closet. I actually have plastic covers on all of the clothes that I don't wear for the season. <laughs> uh, I'm in Texas, so we have two seasons. So it's either really cold or it's really hot. And, uh, you know, when my friends look at my closet, they're like, oh, everything's all covered up and neat. So, and I make my bed every day. I do follow that rule. Get up, make the bed. So. There you go. Well, I um, started organizing my son's closet when he went to college and he got very angry. He goes, no, dad, those are the polyesters. These are the cottons. These are the, you know, non-dress shirts. I went, oh, I'll never do that again. He is more set up and efficient than I am. All right. Well, so let me start with my first question, Janice. What influenced you to get started in your work in this area and, and why are you doing this today? Um, well, I think I've sort of reached the point of um, I've maxed out what I can do as a consultant. And I guess when we say this point, um, I've pivoted my career from being a healthcare strategy consultant. As you mentioned, I started in 1995 with Deloitte, um, worked with Deloitte, uh, took some time off to raise my kids, came back and worked in the outpatient space, which is a great place to work. Uh, as a consultant strategy still. Um, and it was very gratifying to feel like, you know, we always used to say, you know, we're going to recommend this grand change. And if they do one to 5% of it, you know, it's still a win. And that's not good enough for me anymore. So I think it's taken this long to understand, at least from my perspective, a way to change the industry that's going to really make an impact that's not incremental. And I think I did enough change incrementally as a consultant. And I spent about three or four years writing my book, Healthcare Meet the American Dream, which is my proposal to eliminate health insurance. And um, it's just is a, sort of a culmination of my sort of professional path. And then also we have really cool technology now that we didn't have 10 years ago. Um, all the genetic advancements we have, I think we've gotten a handle on predictive analytics. And I think as a primary care doctor, you can appreciate that I think as an industry and as a culture, we're starting to recognize the importance of the external determinants of health on outcomes. And all of that has sort of fueled this idea of mine uh, related to eliminating health insurance. You know, I have a theory that we spend the first half of our lives, because I've done the math from 95 to 2019, maybe the first half of our lives building our professional chops, and maybe the second half of our life trying to actually use it to create meaning and value. And that sounds exactly like the direction you're going. So here's my question is, what is the exact problem you're really trying to solve? And how are you tackling it with your new book that you've come out with that we'll talk about in a little bit? I am trying to connect a lack of personal accountability for health with financial responsibility. You know, the big problem is the health insurance system doesn't work. But to me, the answer is it doesn't work because it doesn't make us accountable for our health and we have no understanding of where our finances go. So my solution looks to connect those. And, you know, just for your listeners, 
my proposal is uh, I've started a company called Longitudinal Healthcare, and the idea is that we know enough about genetics. We're learn we know enough to know that we need to know more. We're scratching the surface on this, but we appreciate the power of what all the genetic research can tell us about our predispositions to develop disease. We appreciate the external determinants of health, and we have all these cool predictive analytics tools. If you fuse all of those together, we should be able to project the diseases and conditions that an individual is going to develop over the course of their lives. And once you do that, once you sort of know what you're going to get, you don't need to insure yourself anymore. It makes health insurance obsolete. So it's a different way to look at the system. Um, and if health insurance is obsolete, you don't have to pay a health insurance company. My view is that uh, we should be paying into our own investment accounts that I call longitudinal healthcare plans. And um, we would, instead of paying an insurance company, pay this, uh, pay this longitudinal healthcare plan based on this projection of diseases and conditions we're expected to develop over the course of our lives. And my company, Longitudinal, would help our customers figure out how much they'd have to save, come up with an investment plan. But the key to this is that every year, our customers would have to go back to their primary care doctor or their whoever their coordinator is and uh, have a physical, go over all their external determinants of health. You know, Maybe they've gotten a divorce, maybe they've moved, maybe they had a child, um, all kinds of things happen. And we can say something like, hey, um, you've gained 10 pounds this year. We have talked to you about the history of uh, heart issues in your family. We had projected you could have a heart attack at 65. Uh, if you keep this up, it's going to come earlier in your 50s. Uh, you're trending towards being diabetic. Your cholesterol's gone up. Here's what you can go do. And then we partner with clinical clinicians in the community that sort of uh, match the needs of our customers to go help them help themselves. And it's a longitudinal view of health that, you know, leverages what primary care doctors should be doing in my mind is, you know, helping people look not just this year, but over the entire course of their life so they can live their lives the way that they want to live it. So let me dive right in the middle of this. If I, you and I would both recognize, or most people would recognize there's a uh, behavior aspect of this, that if I quit eating this, or if I start exercising that, I'm going to change my ability to uh, live longer dramatically. I mean, it can make, we know that uh, lifestyle, DNA, diet, those are really important uh, determinants, two out of three, which, which we can control. Are you thinking of gamifying my exercise program so that I would want to get up in the morning because I it'll cost me less to put in this account? Will I, uh, will I have any incentives to uh, eat better and healthier and less? Um, I hesitate to use game the word gamification um, because it, it just sounds a little gimmicky. <laughs> um, I don't think we need to trick people into doing this. I think that we as a nation don't appreciate the importance of you know three basic things: get enough sleep, eat right, exercise. You know, we fail as Americans to to achieve the clinical guidelines for any one of those basic requirements. I think this, if we start to engage people more and explain to them personally how this affects them, then I think it's self-evident. I mean, this idea that, you know, don't we want to be healthy? You know, it's, I just don't think we have the tools. I think the system that's in place right now 
impedes our ability to do that. And then there's the fact that we as a nation are very unhealthy. So when we look around, what we're seeing, our peers are unhealthy. Um, and if you'll uh, oblige me, there's an element in my book uh, about obesity. And I think this sort of encapsulates this notion of you know, our sort social contract that we have with, with each other, this, this idea that we should be healthy just because it's the right thing to do, not just for ourselves, but for each other. And, you know, this, you're aware that seven out of 10 Americans are either overweight or obese. Four out of 10 Americans are obese. We're one of, you know, the most obese nations in the world, certainly from economically developed nations. And um, obesity correlates to basically every major chronic disease. And what has happened lately over the last 10, 15 years has been what I call this normalization of obesity. And if you look at the data, uh, like Gallup has tracked people's opinions about whether or not they think they're overweight. And we know that the rate of being overweight and obese has gone up, but people's perceptions of themselves, whether they think they're overweight or not, has gone down. And logically, it makes sense because if you look around, seven, and when seven out of 10 people are overweight or obese, that's normal right? It's normal. It's not healthy, but it's normal. So if you're comparing yourself to that, then what you see is someone who's overweight and you may be overweight, but because they're overweight, you don't think you are, you think you're normal. And so that's why this whole notion that we, you know, as a American community, don't think we're as overweight as we are is happening. And not only that, less and less people want to do anything about it. So to me, we need to look at this in a completely different way because of the system we have working right now is, is or the system we have operating is not working for the health of Americans. How soon can we expect to wait before we see some of this start to be implemented? Because it sounds big. It sounds uh, pretty <laughs> much like um, I can't imagine my wife, who's a VP of HR, saying to her, boss with 1500 people in the company and now God, they just got bought but let's just say the 1500 people you know we got to change everything we got to shift to this longitudinal study thing because it really makes more sense what how is this going to bubble up from the ground up to the bigger to the bigger masses yeah i think that's a, a critical question because it is a really big strategic idea um and i don't think this is going to happen overnight in fact, it shouldn't happen overnight. As uh, I've said emphatically in the book and over and over, this is an idea that has to be tested in the market. Um, and people have to adapt it. And the thing is that the, the early adapters of this concept are going to be the healthier, wealthier people because they have less risk. This idea that you're going to surrender your, you know, quote unquote, uh, the comfort and the, the, the financial security that insurance provides us right now to go into the self-funded system is scary. And so we need to have sort of our acolytes and our early adapters prove this model out. And as we do that, we are going to attract more and more people because we'll be able to tweak it as it rolls out. Um, but to answer your question directly, I am now looking for seed funding for my company, um, so this thing hopefully is going to be underway within the next year, and I'm looking to roll it out here in Austin. So let's so, say in Austin you get 500 billionaires to agree to do this, and they all 
come on board. It seems to me there's got to be some type of a long-term study done to show that this, and I don't call it a theory. It looks like it's much more than a theory. It's proof that this is working. In other words, we can't, <clears throat> money is means a lot less to somebody that has millions in their bank account than it does to the average American. Did, did you know that 70% of Americans can't put their hands on a thousand bucks? Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. And I think, you know, I don't think that this model is uh, 500 billionaires at all. Um, so one of the things that I've been working on are some case studies about how much money people actually put into the system and how much is used for them. And, you know, for a family of four, they're putting in, you know, 3000 to $4,000 in excess of what's paid out or paid to um, insurers to treat an average family of four. And for a young male, I mean, they're, they're paying tw they're twice as much as they need to into the system. I mean, they're losing so much money. So our target is, you know, we've got two of them is really the, the younger folks because they're going to have the time to save their money so that it can grow and the interest can grow so that they can have their money towards the end of their life. Um, I think, however, we want to sort of test drive this model to maybe some Gen X folks and, you know, young baby boomers to help them understand that even in five years, they can turn some stuff around and, you know, sort of prep them before they get on Medicare. Because to me, that's like going off the cliff. I mean, you, you know, you, you're in the public health system, then you're going to be paying a ton of money to private insurers for secondary insurance. More and more money is going to be required of the average American to pay for their care because um, the system is just gigantic. So one of our ideas is to sort of test drive this less from the longitudinal financing perspective and more from a sort of corrective action view, like a five-year horizon to say, you know, you were prescribed this medication when you were 25 years old. You've been on it for 25 years. You know, drugs have changed since then. Some of the therapies have changed since then. Why don't we help you take a sort of clean slate, look at where you are right now, because if you continue the, this path of this historical health that you've, um, healthcare that you've been utilizing, you've got a strong, you know, uh, potential to develop. My biggest fear is dementia. I mean, there have been, in, as you know, increases, dementia is coming earlier and earlier because, you know, big factor, more and more people are on more and more drugs. And I am a big fan of, you know, getting folks on the lowest dosage they need and using drugs as, uh, you know, the option of, of last resort. I got to tell you, mom is in her 80s. She's been with the same cohort of 60 friends for 60 years. I mean, they're just this crowd that all love each other and have since they're in their 20s. And she's losing more friends to dementia than she is to death. I mean, it's, it's you said goodbye in a different way when somebody forgets who you are. Or you yeah, it's really a restaurant sad. And they're a total stranger. So, and the stress that puts on their families. But uh, so let's talk about how you're making this happen. You're going to raise the money. What's the first thing you do next, Janice? Well, there's not one thing. There's a whole bunch of things that happen mm -hmm. in parallel. Um, you know, certainly we have to develop the product. So, um, and I've already designed the product. Um, and that is our uh, sort of data engine that creates this conditions timeline. That's what I call it, um, which is your projection of the diseases and conditions you're going to develop. And we as a company are going to be continuously tweaking that because there are 10 new genetic tests that come out every day. 
Um, we are not going to be giving every single customer every single genetic test because it's not cost effective. It's not necessary. We've got to be smart about how we do this. And we're going to get smarter and smarter about that. So we've got to sort of you know, come up with the right genetic testing profile for, you know, different types of customers. Um, and then we were developing an app to capture the external determinants of health for our customers. That should be pretty easy instead of filling out a crazy piece of paper. Um, we want to be able to make this as easy for our customers as possible um, and developing that. So there's product development. There's a huge advocacy component of this. And this is part of the reason why the, you know, it's sort of a ch chicken and egg. I wrote the book, and then after I finished the book, I realized that I had created this idea, and if I didn't go do this idea, uh, somebody else would. And I, I just, it just was so cool. Like you know, I was never going to come up with, with an idea like this again. So the book actually is the narrative business plan. The podcast that you mentioned, and thank you very much, the Powers Report podcast is a platform to talk about all the issues that are going to drive this. We need to get some um, major influencers and major media coverage of this idea to validate it because it is so new and different. We need people talking about it so that you know our potential customers hear more and more about it, and it's sort of demystified, and it's uh, you know given the credibility that it needs to to take off. So there's that component. And a major aspect for us, if you look at the financing for healthcare, the average half of Americans get their health insurance from employers. And if you look at the dollars that go into the system to pay for healthcare, a significant portion of it comes from the employer sponsored health subsidy. So we are working, I've already talked with the Texas Department of Insurance, we are working on ways to figure out how we can get employers to give that subsidy. Uh, we want to be able to have that as a transferable dollar amount so that employees can take the money from their employer and put it into their longitudinal health care account instead of having the employer pay for insurance with it. You know, we're looking to pilot this with a, uh, a big employer here that has some younger um, employees who would be really our target market and could save their money over the course of their lives. So the average large deductible plan today, 7,000, <clears> well, I said earlier, 70% of workers have less than $1,000 in the bank that they can put their hands on. There's nothing about today's plans that is usable or practical. They're really shareholder insurance is what we call them. Um, so your biggest challenge, I think you already outlined, you've got to get the word out and tell, have the, have the world understand how this uh, can solve a lot of problems. Besides your book, uh, what should we be reading to learn more about this? Um, you know, I, uh, you can check out my Twitter feed because almost every day I tweet out an article that, um, I think is interesting, um, about this issue. So, you know, there are the major outlets like the, the Kaiser family foundation, the Peterson foundation, um, the, uh, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, they tend to be a little left-leaning. Um, I just got forwarded a study from um, uh, a foundation out of California, I think it was the Robert Wood Foundation, that talked about, surprisingly, that there's a gap in health outcomes and wealth. And, you know, we've known this forever, and this is a, a function of the fact that folks who have less money have a lower level of education, typically, 
Um, they don't live in the best areas of town. It's less safe. Um, it's harder for them to get, you know, great employment that has insurance, all these things sort of snowball. And, you know, the, the recommendations in this report were that, um, you know, we should maybe have a, uh, a base, um, guaranteed income for people to address this health wealth issue. And I have found lately that a lot of these foundation reports that seem to be so objective before are becoming very politicized um, and they're being used as platforms to, I think, you know, forward some of these ideas that are a little left leaning. And, And if you like that, that's great. I wish they were a little more objective because the information in there is really important. I mean, we need to acknowledge this this uh, gap. My view on stuff like this is that you know, I have two views on the health wealth gap and, and it's written about a lot. So in the media, you're going to find this a lot. But my view is that I think primary care visits should be mandatory for everybody. And I don't, you know, we know as a nation that the more we can understand about what it means to be in good health and what you can do for yourself, the better your health outcomes are going to be. We, we know we have an education disparity so why we don't make primary care mandatory, I, I don't understand it. I mean, there's this notion that economists say that if we give something away for free, people are going to use it. Well, they don't use primary care visits for wellness checks. We don't. So that idea is like, you know, that's great economists in, you know, the, cons- the real consumer-based world, but it doesn't work in healthcare. So I would like that to happen. I also think that um, for the p- folks who don't have as much money, a lot of times they're either on Medicaid or they can't qualify for Medicaid and they're working these part-time jobs and they're cobbling together multiple part-time jobs to make enough money to help their family. I think that employers should be providing part-time employees with a sliding scale of this employer subsidy to the part-time employees. Because if that happened, and you're a part-time employee, you've got multiple jobs, you can put together enough money from this employer subsidy to actually go out and buy insurance. You know, And then they get off Medicaid, they get off the rolls, they'll have more money, to your point, to be able to you know, sustain themselves, their families, and do the things that they need to do to make themselves better. Um, so to answer your question though, um, I read the Wall Street Journal, I, I'm on tons of uh, distribution lists, the New York Times, um, you know, there's all kinds of science magazine, all kinds of things that come out. It really depends on what your spin is. But I like to see the policy stuff and certainly the advancements in uh, technology and and, uh, read about those and how effective they are. I don't want to let a quick question escape me since you brought up your Twitter feed. What is your Twitter handle? It's at Janice, J-A-N-I-S, like Joplin, underscore powers, P as in Peter, O-W-E-R-S. So let's talk about in your what is your message in a billboard or on a uh, banner behind an airplane to the world? What what in a couple of sentences does the world need to know? Uh, well, certainly we're going to make health insurance obsolete, and we're going to connect your personal accountability with financial responsibility. Love it! I love that we're not thinking about it, we're not working on it, we're gonna. We're doing love, it. It's happening. We're gonna. We're gonna. <laughs> we gonna that we like to have. We gotta. We gotta. Yeah, we talked. It. I mean, ideas are great. Ideas are free, and it's funny because somebody asked me why. I wrote all this stuff in my book because now everyone was going to find out. And I'm like, fine. Well, first of all, you know, this is, these are ideas and you got to go do it. That's the hard part. 
You know, I can come up with ideas all day long, but, you know, actually implementing them is the big challenge. Yeah, you know that. Okay, so Powers Podcast Report, we're going to look for that on our um, podcast normal sources. The Powers Report, I'm going to find that where? So the Powers Report is a newsletter. Uh, I put it out periodically. You said it's about every week. It's um, it's on my website, JanicePowers.com. So it's J-A-N-I-S, P is in Peter, O-W-E-R-S. Um, and... That is sort of a, I, I try not to spam people with stuff just to do it. So whenever I think something cool has happened, uh, or if I'm going to be at an event like South by, or, um, you know, I, if there's something newsworthy, then I send out the newsletter. So, um, it is a little more frequent than, you know, once a quarter, but, um, it is periodic, but you can find it on my website and there's a link to it on the uh, podcast website too, which so is the we... powers report podcast. Yes. Well, thank you very much. Listen, as, as we said in the intro, there is a solution for every major problem out there. This is a very interesting one, and it's in the budding stages, but it's um, we are interviewing every one of these episodes, somebody who is working on or in the middle of a solution that is actually curing primary care and by extension health care. So Janice Powers, thank you very much for your time. We'll look forward to our next visit. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. You want to shake things up? There's two things you can do for us. One, go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.